Welcome to the Trinity Radio Podcast. This podcast has a video component found at youtube.com slash Braxton Hunter. This means you might miss some visual aspects of the show, but it shouldn't have a serious negative effect. We'd love it if you'd run over to the YouTube channel real quick and subscribe. And if you enjoy this content, do us a favor. Take a moment to give us a five-star review on iTunes and mention a couple of things you like about the podcast. If you really appreciate the show, you can help make it better and get extra content for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash trinity radio. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Trinity Radio. I'm so glad you're here. And today we're going to continue our study through the book of Genesis. But if you've never been a part of this study before, you don't have to have seen any of the previous videos. This is going to uh, be something that can be self-contained and hopefully will be helpful for you, um, even if this is the first video you've seen in the series. Although if you haven't seen the series, there is a playlist that I'm adding to ongoing with each new video that is available on our website uh, at trinityradio.org or on the YouTube. YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Braxton Hunter if you go to the playlist and uh, you can you can watch all of the episodes or listen to all the episodes there and make a real study out of the book of Genesis. With that said, today we're going to be looking at something that is uh, interesting because this is the last major event that takes place in the life of Jacob. Most of the rest of Genesis is either going to catalog what happens with families um, or primarily it's going to focus on Joseph. I mean, it's mostly going to be about Joseph going forward. And so this is this is kind of an interesting and important moment in the life of Jacob. So let's just go ahead and jump in. One of the things that I guess you could take away, there's there's not a whole lot I'm going to try. I'm not going to try to sermonize too much about this or give you life application. Draw that where you can. This is more just going to be a verse-by-verse study straight through what's happening and what implications and what's important about that, more like a commentary. But I will say this. It, when, I, when I put together some of these things, sometimes I like to go and look and say, what have pastors done with this material? Like how have, especially with, we're going to cover chapters 35 and 36 today. What have pastors done to try and draw application for their people out of these stories. And one of the things that uh, several pastors pointed out about chapter 35 is it kind of gives you, if you put yourself in Jacob's perspective, it kind of gives you a way of trying to get out of a slump, out of a... um, a slump where there have been drawbacks, perhaps spiritually, and we're going to see things applicable to that. And that's certainly true. I mean, right now in my life, I have sort of tried to boost over the past couple of months my spiritual relationship with God. And um, it's just been amazing to me how quickly that growth comes. This is something that I found throughout my Christian walk and that other great men and women before me have poured into me. And it's, it's just shown to be true more and more all the time. And that is that if you, if, if you look to get away from God, that is, if you open yourself up to temptation, um, the enemy will give you the fastest way to get as far away from God as you possibly can. Things will almost seem to appear spontaneously, opportunities for you to get as far away from God, uh, spiritually speaking, as, as possible. At the same time, it is the case that if you begin to uh, devote yourself to your relationship with God, it's amazing how quickly 
um, th those things can be th that that relationship can be fostered and you'll see growth in your life. I can't guarantee that in everyone, but I found it to be true. And uh, it's, it's kind of like right now, I've just started with uh, a colleague, Dr. Jonathan Pritchett, doing muscle building workouts. And, you know, one of the things that he and another employee at Trinity pointed out to me is that you'll have those um, newbie gains, you know, you'll you'll gain very quickly at, at the first, uh, but then that slows down as time goes on. Well, there may be some newbie gains to getting spiritually invested as you should be. And maybe this series is a part of you doing that. I, I don't know. I'd be honored to know that that's the case. All right. So let's jump right in here with Genesis chapter 35 and verse one, and let's see what it says in this story. Then, then God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and live there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Now, when Jacob was here before in Genesis chapter 28, he set up a stone and promised he would return and give a tenth of everything that he had to, to God, and he would do all those kind of things. Which, by the way, if you're giving a tenth of what you own to God in this period of time at that place, you're, it's going to come in the form of, um, of sacrifices, animal sacrifices and other kinds. This would be done in the form of a massive slaughter. I mean, Steve Gregg, who's one of our professors here at Trinity, goes off about how this would have been with Jacob and what we know about his flock and how good he was at raising and the livestock and all these kind of things and things we're actually going to find out in this in this section today that we're going to cover uh, it, it this would have been hundreds if not a thousand animals and it would take a really long time and uh, so this would be a a big ordeal this would really be a big thing. I mean, just think about how much, if you've been with us in the previous, I've seen that, um, how much he gave as an offering to uh, his brother to try and appease him because he thought that he was going to come and kill him. And so that was probably nothing compared to what he has here to give to God after the promise that he's made. And before, he, he just kind of set up a pillar. Now he's going to set up an altar. And of course, we know just in the past couple of chapters, Jacob has really cemented that this God of my fathers is going to be my God as well. Verse 2 says, So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Remove the foreign gods which are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Now, uh, in this story, you'll recall that when uh, Jacob left Laban's household, uh, in the you know snuck off, you know with his with his wives and his children, um, Rachel had stowed away and hidden some of the family teraphim, which was the uh, household idols that that she took with her. And so there were pagan gods that were still being worshipped in some sense, or even if she was just hanging on to them as good luck charms or. Uh, as a contract for the land of some sort because they could serve that function. She had those with her. Um, and so you might think he's just referring to this when he's, when he's saying to get all these uh, idols out, these, these false gods and things like that. But a different word is actually used here. Um, in the Faith Life Study Bible, it says the Hebrew phrase used here is Elohe Nekhar and refers to the idols buried by Jacob. Remember, before we saw the teraphim, here we have Elohe Nekhar, and we see in verse 4 that, that Jacob buries these. At his encounter with God at Bethel in 28, 10 through 22, Jacob vowed that if God were to rescue him from exile, then Yahweh would be his God. However, it seems that those of Jacob's household, and perhaps even him, had been worshiping other gods since then. Although a different Hebrew word is used here than the one used for the figurines or household gods that Rachel stole from her father Laban in chapter 31, verse 19, Jacob could be referring to those figurines. It seems, though, that more than the figurines stolen by Rachel were involved. Now, that's not just because 
uh, a different Hebrew word is used. But remember now at this point, after the last chapter, we now have um, all of the women of Shechem that are now here, and they were not worshipers of Yahweh. And so it's, it's likely that now we have all kinds of false gods, whatever they were worshiping, and, um, and, and that sort of thing with us now in our group. And so we've got to really clean house. So we've got to deal with this. Now, these um, under the law, those who had become ceremonially unclean uh, later on under the Mosaic law would, would also wash their clothes and their garments. And this actually, this, this is a symbolic thing. You're going to see some symbolism here. Uh, we'll talk about that more in just a minute. But this burying of the idols, this uh, cleansing yourself if you had become ceremonially unclean, and the taking off of garments and putting on new garments, it did become a part of uh, the law later on. But here, it, it almost seems intuitive that you would, it's almost like taking off your old identity, your old self. And now you have a new self, a new identity with this group of people uh, worshiping the one true God. Uh, we see echoes of this even in the New Testament in the book of Ephesians, that you take off your, your, your old self and put on this new self and that sort of thing. Um, Walter Brueggemann says in his Genesis interpretation, quote, as much as Genesis 34, this text knows that faithfulness in the land among the Canaanites is a risky business. So now he's moving it to the point of, okay, we're getting rid of these gods. We're, we're going through a, a purification sort of ceremony. Why? Well, the reason why is because we're going to have to function in this land and be faithful to Yahweh. Jacob's concerned about that now, and that is risky business with the Canaanites. Brueggemann goes on, but this text knows, as chapter 34 does, does not, that Israel cannot either leave the land or kill all the Canaanites. Now, they would have been, Jacob's entourage would have been huge now, would have looked like a kingdom to anybody watching, at least as kingdoms existed at the time. Uh, but still, the idea of killing all the Canaanites was out of the question, and they can't leave because this is where God's telling them to come. Israel must find a way to stay in the land with the Canaanites and yet practice faithfulness. Now, this is starting to get some real application for our experience today in the modern world. Uh, the, way chose, the way chosen to do this with, uh, without either destructiveness or accommodation is by way of radical symbolization, end quote. So this is actually interesting, and you see this in the law. Have you ever wondered why it is that the laws of Moses that we get later, and even maybe what we see right here as, it, as it's starting to head that direction, look really odd? I mean, it looks really—some of the laws, if you're familiar with them— are really bizarre, like wearing clothes of don't wear clothes of mixed fabric, and that's the one that gets trotted out a lot, and all these kind of things. Well, um, many scholars think, and I I personally am of this persuasion, because we see it beginning here. Uh, the, the seems the reason they're doing it here with the clothing and everything anyway is is to cut off, you know, to to show that you are a separate and different people from the peoples around you. Now, to our modern sensitivities, that sounds wrong. That sounds antisocial. It sounds perhaps racist or something like that, but it's not. What it is is, is a way for um, God's budding community of people to have their own identity in Yahweh. And if they function like the people of the pagan communities around them, and if they wear the same kind of clothing that they use, and even the symbolism in like, not that it's mentioned in this passage, but the clothing of mixed fabrics, um, we don't do that. And we don't do, I mean, we do today, but back then in their day when they were trying to drive this home, when they're in a plural culture with all kinds of other 
you know, pagan groups out there. Even the fact that you wouldn't wear clothing of mixed fabric was an ongoing symbol to remind you and anyone around you, we don't mix like that. We are a unique people that is worshiping Yahweh. Now, someone might, and so there's a lot of symbolism here that, that all is built around that, all built around, and the Mosaic law is built around, even in the types of food they eat, and that, that's a whole thing. You can study that on your own. But, but it's all built around this notion that we are a separate people. We are different. We're not like those other communities around us. We worship the one true God, and we don't worship those other gods. Now, of course, it was always the case that others could come in and be a part of Israel, but they had to engage in Yahweh worship and be circumcised and do all these kind of things. Um, now, wh why is that? Why is it that under the Old Covenant, because if you don't know by now, the Old Testament, the way God worked with, with um, dominantly what we have come to call the Jewish people in the Old, old Covenant, um, what is it, that's an old, the Old Testament is the Old Covenant. And now we are in the New Covenant. There is a new covenant. Um, it's more than a contract, but a new contract between God and his people. And that new contract is in Jesus. That new covenant is, is, is founded on what Jesus did for us, where the law was satisfied. The law was pointing toward um, sacrifices for sins and all those kind of things. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice that covered all the sins for all and forever. And so you identify with him in the new covenant and you have something that's a little different. Now, here's an interesting thing that is a difference between what happened um, on Mount Sinai with the new law that would come and what would happen. And I know we're getting away from the text here, but this this symbolism that's in this chapter warrants this. And, and, but there's a difference between what happened at Sinai, which we could look at as um, the establishment of, of the. with the new covenant with Jesus. Obviously, there are many differences. There are many similarities. But one of the things that we want to notice is the, the people of God in the Old Testament, they had God's guidance. They had God's words. They had God's prophets. And there are benefits to that. What they did not have is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus said, I'll send you another comforter. And that was the Holy Spirit that came on Pentecost. And so uh, that is a very important difference between the people of God in the Old Testament and the people of God in the New Testament. What difference does that make in terms of being a separate people and how being a separate people looks? Well, in the Old Testament, uh, it, the, the people of God didn't have that Holy Spirit to serve as the reformer that is working on us to make us new, to convict of sin, as 2 Corinthians 7 talks about, to renew our mind, as Romans 12, 2 talks about. Um, and, and so because of that, they were more susceptible uh, to um, the temptations of the other gods, of the other peoples that are around about them. And so it was more important to stay separate so that you wouldn't be influenced by them. However, today in the new covenant, we have the Holy Spirit of God working in our lives as believers. And as a result of that, we can actually be in the world, but not of it. We can be in and among uh, those who worship other gods and in and among secular uh, institutions and secular governments and, and secular society. And, and the idea is that because of the Holy Spirit, we are now able to function and they will not influence us. Now they can, obviously that does happen. And in some, to some degree, to, in some sense, it might be, in, it might seem inevitable, 
But, but the idea is because of the Holy Spirit in us, we can influence them. There is a person who listens to this, and, and this person will know who I'm talking about, who is in the entertainment industry and is an actor. And uh, sh she shared with me that one of her concerns might be that, um, that she would be influenced by the entertainment world and, and, and all of that as a Christian. And that is certainly something that we should all be aware can happen, and especially in an industry like that, that is so powerful and so influential that it actually shapes culture. Um, that can certainly happen. But the thing that the, the, the thing that we have, we have almost like this superpower. Um, and of course, it, that the whole idea is that we have these earthen vessels, these jars of clay um, in, in which is this power and, and the, to show that this all surpassing power is we contain it, but it's not from us. It's from God. That's what Paul says. And so as a result, we can impact even those people. And uh, someone, th this is going to sound self-aggrandizing, and I don't mean it that way, but someone recently did a review of the first book in my fiction series, The Chronicles of the Adonai, and uh, they put some lines that they said were kind of impactful to them. And what, and I was like, did I write that? Because that I, I don't remember writing that, but it's, sure enough, it's there. And one of the things that they liked was a line that says, and maybe someone else said this, and I'm not aware of it, and it was stuck in my craw when I wrote the book. I don't know. Um, but, but I said something like darkness is a cowardly thing. It scatters at the first hint of light. And the idea, of course, there is if you're in a completely dark place and you light a match, it seems to light up the whole room to a certain degree and the darkness is chased away. And the, the fact is, uh, you can do that in the world. You can be in and among these peoples who are not believers and impact them because of the Holy Spirit. But during the Old Testament time, they didn't have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the way that we do now after Pentecost. And so as a result, they needed to be separate. And the way this all ties back to what we're talking about now is the symbolism you see in this chapter and the ceremony and the purity and, and all of those kind of things that, that, that are uh, remind us of the Mosaic Law. Those are all there to remind the people of Israel regularly that they are not like those other people and they are not to mix with those other people and with their worship. So all of that, I think, is important to understand and, uh, and, and to keep in mind as we go through this. Uh, okay, so uh, verse 3 says, And let's arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God who answered me on the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which they had and the rings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the oak tree uh, which was near Shechem. Now, oak trees, uh, trees in general are, are very important uh, in the history of Israel, but uh, here is a place where they can remember. Now, think, imagine what a serious treasure trove that would be. Uh, because you've got all the women of Shechem coming in, and they're they're all, and then all of Jacob's people who might have still been uh, worshiping other gods, and now you're bearing all of those precious metals next to this tree under this tree. I wonder if it's ever been discovered. If we could find that, you would it would have a double benefit. You wouldn't just confirm a portion of the story here, but you would also have an incredible. Um, financial benefit, it looks like. All right, verse five, as they journeyed, there was a great terror upon the cities which were around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Now, why would there be a terror uh, upon, upon the cities which were around them that they wouldn't come after the sons of Jacob? Well, um, you might think after the whole combat by circumcision thing that we saw in the last chapter, uh, it's no surprise that no one would want to mess with them. Jacob had been, you got to remember though, that I don't think that's necessarily the reason, or at least not the only reason, because Jacob was actually afraid after that. He chides his sons 
because he's afraid this is going to give them a black eye in, in, in the eyes of all the people around them. But um, and, and it'll make them a target. But 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 actually, I don't think that's it. It's because God's uh, protection of Jacob and his family. Verse six. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who are with him. Then he built an altar there and called El Bethel, which means like God, the God of Bethel, God, the uh, God of the house of God. Uh, Bethel, the house of God. So God of the house of God, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. Now, now listen to this, because this is the sort of thing that if you're reading the Bible on your own and part of your daily devotion, perhaps you might read over this and not catch this. Now, Deborah, Rebecca's nurse died and she was buried below Bethel under the oak tree. And it was named Elon Bacchus or the tree of weeping, because this is sad that Deborah dies. Now, when we hear the name Deborah, we think of a different Deborah um, from the book of Judges. But I want you to notice here a couple of things. Who is this Deborah? Well, she's Rebecca's nurse. Now, but, but don't get Rebecca confused with Rachel. That happens to a lot of people. Uh, Rachel is Jacob's wife, the one that he loves the most or whatever. But Rebecca is Jacob's mother. How did Rebecca's nurse get here? Well, Jacob's been gone from his family for 20 years, right? So, so when did this, when did she come to be a part of them? Well, the simple answer is that we don't know and nobody knows. Um, but Steve Gregg, to cite him again, he hypothesizes that perhaps Rebecca has died by this point and Deborah was a household servant of hers. So the most natural thing to do might be to go continue that job under some other woman in the family. And Jacob's family was an obvious choice. We don't know when she came, but it might well be may, may well have been when they were still back in Paddan Aram, when the wives started having children, because that you would have needed all hands on deck there, especially with the kids they were going to have. Perhaps he did go back now that he's in, in the land again, and we just aren't told that. That's a possibility, too. Uh, but we really just don't know. So it's a bit of a mystery, but, but uh, there's some comments on it. All right. Uh, verse 9, Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram. And he blessed him. God said to him, your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called him Israel. God also said to him. Well, now, understand, this is a reaffirmation of what has already happened. But in case you missed it or this is your first video in the series, when we talk about Israel, when you say the children of Israel, you're talking about the children, the peoples that came out of Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel, which means something like one who wrestles with God or something. All right. I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. All right. We're familiar with that. And nation, a nation and a multitude of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from you. Well, that's definitely true. Right. And the land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you and I will give the land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him at the place where he had spoken with him. Now, notice if God goes up from him, then that means clearly God came down to him. You say, well, what does what does that look like? Well, I, I'm one of those. I mean, when we see God appearing in the Old Testament uh, where somebody sees God, like perhaps Adam walking in the garden with God or when Moses sees the buries his face in the in the side of the mountain and he just sees the trail of God or whatever, the train of God um, or uh and there may even be other places, like, for example, when you see the angel of the Lord or when you see at, later on when Joshua comes up out of the Jordan River on the other side of the Jordan coming into the land 
and they're camped there. And this guy comes up to him and starts talking to him about what's going to happen. That, that these are theophanies or these may be God appearing. And so you could have theophanies. Now, someone like me actually thinks that when you have God appearing, um, like in bodily form to someone, that that may well be a Christophany. That may be Jesus appearing in the Old Testament. Um, it could well be. But a theophany seems like a, an interesting uh, or a possible or an obvious explanation of this. Um, what Everybody talks about Michael Heiser now. He's very popular. His book, The Unseen Realm, has been read by lots of Christians. And there's a lot that needs to be ironed out in it. My favorite chapter in that book, and the one I have no objections to, as far as I can remember, is his chapter on the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord seems to be uh, a theophany or Christophany in the Old Testament as well. What would that have been like to have God come down to you and speak to you in this way? What an amazing, amazing thing that must have been. Verse 14, so Jacob sets up a memorial stone in the place where he had spoken with him, a memorial stone, and he poured out a drink offering on it. So that would have been like uh, pouring out wine or something, some valuable drink or beverage that you had. And it also says he poured out oil on it. And Jacob named the place where God had spoken with him Bethel. Now, again, this has already happened. This is a reaffirmation of what has already happened, just, just to keep you abreast of what's going on. Then they journeyed up on from Bethel, but when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, now Ephrath is another name for Bethlehem, so that's something to keep in mind. Rachel began to give birth, and she suffered several uh, severe rather difficulties in her labor. And when she was suffering severe difficulties in her labor, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And it came about, as her soul was departing, for she died, that she named him Ben-Onai. But his father called him Benjamin. Now, Ben-Onai means son of my sorrow. Benjamin means son of my right hand. So um, there's a couple of things going on here. Number one, that'd be pretty sad to go by the name son of my sorrow uh, for the rest of your life. That'd be kind of a downer. Uh, who's that coming into the party? Oh, that's son of my sorrow. Um, but also that he names him, that that uh, that he call, that Jacob calls him Benjamin, um, that that kind of the, the son of my right hand kind of may indicate that he is going to be Jacob's right hand man, or maybe even like uh, his favorite, um, which is and, you know, he may have felt like he should give him special treatment because that was Rachel's son and, and Rachel died giving birth to that son. So kind of in honor of her, that could have been what's going on. But regardless of that, later on, he gives that kind of treatment to Joseph, as we all know. I shouldn't say, as we all know, but if you're familiar with the story, you might know. Verse 19, so Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath. And Jacob sets up a memorial stone over her grave. That is the memorial stone of Rachel's grave to this day. Then Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. Now, uh, there actually is a place outside of Bethlehem today that still is marked as the, the, the place where Rachel was buried. But when you go there, I, w one of the sad things about going to um, Israel is there are very few places where you can go where you actually know, okay, this is the place. There are a lot of places that um, have been specified or, or, or decided upon to, to remember, but, but there's no real way of verifying that. And most scholars don't think these places, in most cases, are the actual places. I remember when I went to, um, <clears throat> when I went to, uh, um, uh, I've been to Jerusalem several times, but when I, or Israel, but when I went to um, uh, Turkey, to, to film the documentary there. One of the things that happened was we, we went to uh, a particular city 
where uh, Paul had gone on his missionary journeys. And there is, and this is normal with these cities, there's an outer gate of the city, but then inside there's an older gate because the walls of the city used to be there and then it's expanded, the city's expanded. Uh, but the but the inner gates were the ones that were there during the time of Paul and the entrance to this particular city were only about, you know, four or five feet across uh, and everyone had to go in through that gate. So Paul came to this city during the time this gate that's still there is was built and or it was actually around before that. So he had to go right through this gate. So it's one of the few places for what it's worth that you can stand there, stretch out your arms and say, I am standing where the Apostle Paul stood. There's there's no way around it. So that's pretty cool. But there are very few places like that. Um, and uh, and so there is a place that's considered to be Rachel's uh, burial spot, but we, we don't have any way to really <clears throat> confirm that that's legitimate. Verse 22, and it came about while Israel was living in that land that Reuben went and slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah, and Israel heard about it. Now, this, uh, what we get here in this part of the book of Genesis is, it's like we're wrapping up the important features, uh, things that had to do with Jacob's life. And so we get these little vignettes of different things that are happening. And so we get a couple of those thrown in here at the end of this chapter. And uh, hopefully you haven't gotten the impression, Bilhah was Jacob's wife, um, one of the handmaidens, right? But don't get the impression that this was um, that this was Reuben's mother. This was not his mother. It would have been like a stepmother to him. He would have been around her, obviously, his whole life growing up. Uh, but this concubine was another wife of his father. If you know the story of David, this reminds us of what happened with Absalom. Absalom slept with his father's wife, but that was kind of a power play, a symbolic um, message that he was taking the inheritance from his father. This was uh, obviously understood as a way that a usurper might assert his dominance and send a very graphic message. Maybe that was what was happening. And maybe because Benjamin was getting to be the right-hand man, it looked like special treatment on the basis of his name, then uh, maybe this was a, a way to say, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm going to be the top dog around here. Um, and remember, they were like a kingdom now. Uh, don't think of a kingdom like a, like a you know, the uh, United States as a nation, not like that. But for the time in, the, in this place, they were, would have looked to the peoples around them like a whole kingdom. And so power and, and who's in charge is very important. And so this could have been a, a power play sort of thing. If the explanation that most naturally springs to mind is that this was just a lustful desire on Reuben's part for Bill Ha, uh, that is, of course, possible. But remember that she'd be a whole lot older to him and all of the women of Shechem were there. So there were other people for him to date. It wasn't like there was a shortage of, of people for him to marry with or or to be with. And uh, she was the only woman around. And that just doesn't seem like the likely suggestion. Um, so so I, I don't know that that actually uh, actually works. Uh, there is one thing that um, that I want to read to you here. That, uh, that that is from, again, the, the Faith Study Bible says, uh, Bilhah was Rachel's maidservant with the matriarch of the, uh, with the matriarch of the family now dead. Reuben's violation of Bilhah ensures she will never replace Rachel as chief wife. Had Bilhah desired his status, this status, 
her chief rival would have been Leah, Reuben's mother. So there might have been a motivation there as well. So maybe it was just lust, but that would be um, probably not the most natural or most, well, it may be the most natural, but it's certainly not the most likely explanation. But whatever he was thinking, he was excluded from the birthright because of this. All right. Now there were 12 sons of Jacob, verse 23. The sons of Leo were Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, then Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin, and the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's female slave, were Dan, or, or handservant, Dan and Naphtali, and the sons of Zilpah, Leah's handservant, were Gad and Asher. They, these were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. Aram. Now, we always try to point out apologetic material when we need to. There may be some work we need to do here. It lists these 12 sons and says that they were born. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. Now, Benjamin was obviously not born in Padan Aram. So one might present this as an obvious mistake or some kind of a contradiction. But as I've said before, uh, afford the author who just immediately before this just literally just wrote to you about the death of Ben about the um, death of Rachel and the birth of Benjamin and where that took place. Some credit that he's not a complete idiot and he knows what he's saying. What makes sense is that the author is communicating that these are the 12 sons and they were born during the Padanarum era, basically. Uh, Benjamin is the obvious exception to the general statement, but rather than confuse the list with caveats, the author, the author just uh, gives you this. Just here's the 12 sons um, born during that part of the story. I, I don't think there's any reason to think of that as a contradiction or something like that. Um, verse 27, Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre of Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron where Abraham and Isaac had resided. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. Then Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, an old man of ripe age, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Now, <clears throat> in those days, they usually buried a dead body on the same day or shortly thereafter. They wouldn't wait because of the decomposition of the body. That's why Rachel was buried where she, where she died, where, where she was. So in a case like this, if Esau and Jacob were both present, then one of two things seems likely. Either messengers had notified them ahead of time that things aren't looking good, your dad's not going to last too much longer, and so they were there waiting for this to happen so they could bury him pretty quickly. Um, or the second option is that they, when, when he died, they were made aware of this and they came back. And that when the author says that they buried him, that, that Jacob and Esau buried him, the point there is the unity between Jacob and Esau, and perhaps they buried him in the sense that they performed some sort of a, <clears throat> a sort of a memorial uh, ceremony of some sort, some kind of a service for him. And we say that they buried him. That would be something. Well, we talked that way today. I buried my father in 1985. You may just mean that he died and not that you were literally the one who dug the dirt and buried him, right? So uh, either one of those is possible. Uh, so there's, there's nothing, no real problem there, I don't think, either, uh, that we need to spend too much time on that. Um, now, I've, as I mentioned already several times during this series, the death of Isaac is mentioned here, but the chronology of events is going to be upset just a bit. Isaac lived well into the life of Joseph. So the author gets finished with one story and goes ahead and finishes off their details because he's going to move on to another part of the story with other characters and they weren't relevant in the same way. So this just seems like a writing convention and we see it uh, 
a few times in Genesis. Now, chapter 36, which is where we've arrived to now, can pass pretty quickly because it's a cataloging of Esau's line. And not only are they not the chosen line for God's people that we want to follow, they don't even exist anymore, uh, as far as we know. I mean, they, they've gone extinct. The Edomites, which are the people you're going to see Esau referred to as Edom, the Edomites were around for centuries and had a sort of adversarial posture with Israel. So it would have been important to talk about them and mention them here. Um, during the intertestamental period, uh, during the, the, the days of the Maccabees, the Jews brought the Edomites under them and they became known by a Greek form of that name, which is the Idumeans. Herod the Great was half Idumean and half Jewish. And soon after this period, the Edomites were extinct during the first century, probably. So these people don't even exist anymore, but um, but it gives you this, this list, and we'll make some comments on it. So chapter 36. Now these are the records of the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Esau took his wife from the daughters of Canaan, Adah, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and Ohilabama, the daughter of Anah, the granddaughter of Zibion, the Hivite, also Basimath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nabaioth. So the names, the, here's another moment where we need to talk a little bit about what looks odd to some people. The names of Esau's wives are listed here, and the names of Esau's wives are listed in Genesis chapter 6, 26, but the names differ with at least one woman. This has been alleged to be a contradiction, but I don't think it's nece it necessarily has to be a contradiction. Uh, you can freely check out one explanation of this that seems plausible in an article on Defending Inerrancy's website called How Many Wives Did Esau Have? It gives the following explanation that involves the notion that one daughter is known by another name so that it looks like the lists are different in that way. And, just, and the reason it does that is to avoid confusion. Uh, Genesis 36 uses that other name. So let's, let's, uh, let's take a look at what that article says. So here's the problem. Genesis 26, 34 states that Esau married Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, and Basimath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. However, Genesis 36, 2 through 3 says that Esau's wives were Adah, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, Ahalibama, the daughter of Anah, and Basimath, Ishmael's daughter. So here's the question. Did Esau marry Elon's daughter, Basimath, or his daughter, Adah? Did Esau have two, three, or four wives? So here's the solution they offer. The wives of Esau were four. Judith, the daughter of Beri, Basimath, who was also named Adah, the daughter of Elon. So Basimath, on this understanding, was also named Adah, the daughter of Elon. Ahalibama, the daughter of Anah, and Basimath, the daughter of Ishmael. The reason Judith is not mentioned in Genesis 36, 2 through 3 is because she bore him no children. And Genesis 36 is a statement of the records of the generations of Esau. So you wouldn't mention a wife that didn't bury many children. Uh, also, it was a common practice for men and women to be known by more than one name. Apparently, Basimath, the daughter of Elon, uh, was also named Adah and is so identified in Genesis 36, 2 in order to distinguish her from Basimath, the daughter of Ishmael. So Esau had four wives. So the name change would, would make sense so that you don't have two girls with the same name and it doesn't get confusing. You, uh, so 
Now, you know, there's another possibility, and that is that some of Esau's wives died childless, and he married other wives with different names. We just don't know. But the charge of con contradiction uh, or error won't stick because there are simple enough explanations that don't seem desperate or reaching, as far as I can tell. All right, verse 4. Adah bore Eliphaz to Esau, and Basimath gave birth to Reuel. And Ahalabama gave birth to Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Now notice that Adah bore Eliphaz. And that name might strike you, um, and you might remember a name like Eliphaz in the Bible, because in the book of Job, one of his friends had that name. And if this was a family name, it might even be that this is one of this, Eli that the Eliphaz in the book of Job is a descendant of this Eliphaz. Steve Gregg mentions that there may be good reason to associate the book of Job with Edomite stuff because he also has a friend who was a Temanite. And Teman is also listed here in Genesis chapter 36. So there, and we're going to get something else about that that's super interesting as a possibility in just a few minutes. So, so remember that we're going to talk a little bit more about the book of Job and a connection that might be here. But so far, we've already got two connections because we have um, the originator of the line of, of Eliphaz, and we have a Temanite, because Teman has been mentioned. All right, verse 6. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all his household, and his livestock, and all his cattle, and all his property, which he had acquired in the land of Canaan, and went to another land away from his brother Jacob. For their possessions had become too great for them to live together, and the land where they resided could not support them because of their livestock. This reminds you of Abram and, and Lot, right? So Esau lived in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. They keep reminding you of that. These then are the records of the generations of Esau, the father, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons, Eliphaz, the son of Esau's wife, Adah and Reuel, the son of Esau's, we've done some of this already, wife, uh, uh, Basimath. The sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Canaz. Timnah was a concubine of Esau's son, Eliphaz, and she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. Now, obviously, Amalek is pretty important because that becomes one of Israel's adversaries later, and uh, they are actually cursed by God. They are one of the, they are the first to attack Israel after they come out of Egypt. So it's worth noting them, uh, the Amalekites. Um, all right, these are the sons of Esau's wife, Adah, and these are the sons of Reuel. Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizhah. These were the sons of Esau's wife, Basimath. And these were the sons of Esau's wife, Aholibama, the daughter of Anah, the granddaughter of Zibion. She bore to Esau, Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau. So you can imagine them having, uh, like Israel's, like you have the 12 tribes and you have these tribal, these, these tribes are named for the, uh, the sons of Jacob, the same sort of things going on over here with the Edomites <clears throat> or something similar. The sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, are Chief Timon, Chief Omar, Chief Zepho, Chief Kenaz, Chief Korah, Chief Getam, and Chief Amalek. These are the chief de chief's descendants from Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Adah, and these are the sons of Reuel, Esau's sons, Chief Nahath, Chief Zerah, Chief Shammah, and Chief Mizah. 
These are the chiefs descended from Raul in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Esau's wife, Basimath. Wife Basimath. And these are the sons of Esau's wife, Aholabama, Chief Jeush, Chief Jalam, and Chief Korah. These are the chiefs descended from Esau's wife, Aholabama, the daughter of Anah. These are the sons of Esau, that is Edom, and these are their chiefs. These are the sons of Seir, the Horite, the inhabitants of the land. Now, these names are not the, are not the offspring of Esau. That, that we're just coming to. They are the offspring of the people in the land that Esau was going to uh, interact with or encounter. And so there's really no reason for us to read through those names, but there they are for you to look at. Now come down to verse 31. Now these are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the sons of Israel. Now this statement has caused trouble for people who affirm Mosaic authorship like I do because they want to point out, because I, I affirm that Moses was the author of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Um, and uh, th this is thought to cause trouble because when, when it says here, uh, this is before any king reigned over the sons of Israel, it strikes you perhaps as thinking, because the author was like thinking, we know that there have been kings over Israel. So this is pointing to a time before all those kings that you know about and that I know about is the author of this. And so it seems to have the posture of someone writing after there are kings in Israel. And so some people do take it that way. I don't think that's necessarily the case. There are a couple of ways that you could think about this. One way of thinking about it would be you could say, <clears throat> see, it, I don't know anyone that seriously is a serious thinker who affirms Mosaic authorship, that Moses was the author, that doesn't also believe that there were editorial comments added by later generations. Um, every, just about everyone believes that. So it, it's not that difficult to imagine that someone might have put in as an editorial comment. This uh, was before the, any king reigned over the sons of Israel. Um, another, and actually that's the possibility that I think is most likely. <clears throat> another possibility is the fact that if this is Moses writing this, Moses did anticipate for sure a time when there would be kings over Israel. That's already been in chapter 35. There was a mention to Jacob by God about, about kings. Um, but notice in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14, it says, when you enter the land which the Lord your God is giving you and you take possession of it and live in it, and you say, I will appoint a king over me like all the nations who are around me, you shall in fact appoint a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. So, uh, Moses was aware of this and knew that would happen. And, um, and he, he anticipates that. So it could well be that he's talking about this. Now, these are the Kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any King reigned over the sons of Israel, because he anticipated that later generations would, would have Kings in the land. Now, I don't particularly find that one to be that appealing. I think it's an editorial comment, but both of those are made available to you there. All right. Verse 32, Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, and the name of his city was Dinhabah. Then Bela, Bela died, and Jobab, Jobab, the son of Zerah of Bozrah, became king in his place. Now, some, this is interesting, I think, whether your mileage may vary, but whether you agree or not, it's an interesting idea. Some argue that Jobab means one who howls loudly. And some think this might actually have been Job from the book of Job, like Job from the story of Job. And maybe Jobab is the longer form of the name Job. Job did have Edomite friends. We know that. He's supposed to be the greatest and most wealthy from the East. 
And if he was a king, that would make sense why he's the most wealthy. And, and southeast is where Edom was. And if his name means one who howls, maybe that's what he came to be known by after the events in the book of Job, when he certainly could have been described as a man who howls loudly. So that's a possibility that I find super interesting, but we can't be dogmatic about that. Then Jobab died, and Husham of the land of the Temanites became king in his place. Then Husham died, and Hadad, the son of Badad, who defeated Midian in the field of Moab, became king in his place, and the name of his city was Avith. Then Hadad died, and Samlah of Masrekah became king in his place. Then Samlah died, and Shaul of Rehoboth, some of your translations will say Saul, some put Shaul, on the Euphrates River became king in his place. Then Shaul died, and Baal Hanan, the son of Akbar, Akbor, Akbar, Akbar, Admiral Akbar is from Star Wars. <laughs> Akbor died, and Hadar became king in his place. And the name of his city was Pa'al, and his wife's name was Mehetabel, the daughter of Matrid, daughter of Mezahab. Whew, that was a lot to get through. Now, one point that should be brought out is the fact that this information is that the information we have here is here is strong evidence that it is historical in nature rather than mythical in nature, because this information would not have been important to anyone living after the Edomites were gone, who weren't dealing with them, interacting with them. And so this would have been important for them, but it wouldn't be important for anybody else. So someone who was wanting to write a myth of these people, first of all, why? And secondly, if you were writing a myth of these people, why be this detailed? You know, uh, it just seems like you wouldn't do that. The reason you would include this is because this is actually the truth. This is the historical um, case. Verse 40, we're almost done. Now, these are the names of the chiefs descended from Esau, according to their families and their localities by their names, Chief Timnah, Chief Alva, Chief Jetheth. Uh, yeah, Jetheth, Chief Aholabama, Chief Elah, Chief Pinon, Chief Kenaz, Chief Timon, Chief Mibzar, Chief Magdiel, and Chief Iram. These are the chiefs of Edom, that is Esau, the father of the Edomites, in case you haven't gotten that yet, according to their settlements in the land of their possession. Well, there we go. We have made it through two chapters, chapters 35 and 36. And uh, we're not going to spend much more time, uh, as I said before, if you go back and look at the story of Jacob, you can draw some application from that. The application you can draw uh, beyond just learning about the historical information that's there and how God dealt with his people is to recognize that if you're coming out of a spiritual slump of some sort, as the pastors might put it, then one thing that you want to do is you want to um, make sure that you get rid of all the old stuff false gods you've been worshiping. And from our purposes, that might be things that get in the way with your relationship with God. You want to get rid of them, purify yourself, get right with God, move forward. And when things happen in your family that cause great sorrow, like the death of a loved one or those sorts of things, just always keep your eyes on God. Remember to worship him and keep the promises that you made to him. Like Jacob came around and kept the promises he made about the sacrifices and the altar there at Bethel and uh, keeping, trying to keep his eyes on God in the midst of family problems. So we're going to come to the end there. I hope this has been a blessing to you, and I look forward to seeing you next time as we continue with the study of the book of Genesis. Mm-hmm.